Amen to that worship, huh? Thank you. Just two brief announcements uh, before we begin to look at the word. The first one is um, next Friday, or this Friday coming up, uh, I and uh, Steve Jakes and John Stewart, we're going to be going to India, so we would be appreciating your prayers for that. It's a marvelous opportunity to speak to about some, I think, 150 or so pastors and uh, who really don't have uh, get much training. That's actually their vacation. Isn't that amazing? Their one vacation a year is to get some training. So that shows you some pretty great dedication. And uh, that kind of hitchhikes uh, leads me to my second announcement, which is uh, please do not miss. I mean, you're, you're going to miss an awesome time if you don't come to the Wednesday night, uh, our, our prayer time and, and praise time, and we'll be being prayed over, so we certainly would appreciate that, but I, I don't think there's anything more important we can do as a congregation than, than praise God together, right, and, and, and pray, and so that's from 6.30 to 7.30, it's just an hour, and really want to invite you, it's a powerful, powerful time, I'll tell you, we, it's over there in the uh, old sanctuary, and uh, it's got great acoustics, so when you sing, Everything just bounces. It's an awesome experience. So I really want to invite you to that time. All right. Well, there was this young man, and he was uh, sitting in his law class one day, and the law professor asked him this question. He said, do you know what the Roe versus Wade decision was? And the young man thought for a moment, and he pondered this most profound question. And after several seconds, the young man finally said, I think it's the decision George Washington made before deciding to cross the Delaware. Some of you need to think about that, you know. Roe versus Wade. Okay, well, just... Okay, well. Hey. You want the joke from last week? This was actually the better of the two. Well, on that high note, um, we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians uh, this morning. And the Apostle Paul, we talked about unity last week, or Paul talked to us about the importance of our unity. Now he's going to talk to us about the diversity within the unity that we have in the body of Christ. And so I've entitled the message this morning, You Are Important. You Are Important. Lord, I believe this is going to be an important message. And I don't think there's uh, any accident why you brought those that you brought this morning. And I just ask that they would recognize that reality. There are just no coincidences. You are the sovereign of the universe. And they've answered your call. And so I ask that whatever you've determined to do in each person's heart here... They will be open to it. May you give each person here a soft heart and ears to hear. You are good. Your word is powerful and it can bring life. And I pray for that life. I pray and I cry out for that life that's going to occur here this morning as you move, Holy Spirit. I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. And I ask that truly... Your words would come forth this morning, bringing life to every single person here. Now I ask that you just have your way. And I ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What could happen when people work together? You know, oftentimes, 
I don't think we really realize what it takes to pull off something, you know, like a rocket launch. And, you know, I was thinking about that myself. All the people involved in seeing that rocket take off. Just for example, you need engineers to design the rocket. You need people to make the various parts of that rocket. You need to have people put those parts of the rocket together. You need computers, and you need computer people to program the the rocket and the flight path of the rocket. You need people to build the launching pad. You need people to prep the rocket. And of course, you need the astronauts. I mean, the astronauts. Do you realize, no, these people are nuts. They are sitting on a bomb. That's what it is. When when you're on a rocket, they they are literally sitting on top of a bomb, and they're going to fly this thing. Now, now my point is, you know, in fact, I probably also missed a lot of people in between. There's probably managers, middle managers, oversight people. My point in this whole thing, though, is most of the time we as the public, we see the rocket and we see the astronauts, right? We, We tend to even lionize the astronauts. We make heroes out of the astronauts as if they're kind of making the whole thing go. I want you to know something. Every single person, there's probably thousands, thousands of people that were involved in that rocket launch that got us to the moon. And if any single person didn't do their job right, this is what would have happened. Skip put up the picture. You remember that? That was the Challenger disaster. Someone didn't do their job right. Somebody you don't even know didn't do their job right. And that was the result. The Apostle Paul this morning is going to tell us that if you are a believer, if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are critical. You are critical to the body functioning effectively and efficiently. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7. If you have your Bibles, your owner's manual, please bring them out. If not, Skip has it up on the big board. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Jesus Christ. Just uh, for my interest, I guess. How many here would make the claim that you are a born-again Christian? That you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you recognize, and I realize our cross is covered. Wow, all right. <laughs> That's probably not a good thing for a church, is it? <laughs> Got to remember to get the cross out. But you recognize why Jesus died on the cross. You understand what he was doing. You know that you've been forgiven. You know that you've been redeemed. You know that you've been adopted. You are Papa's child. How many are, are certain of that? You just know that. Can you just raise your hand? You know, do a, you know, be proud about that, all right? Most of us, and I figured most of us would probably raise our hands. The Apostle Paul is saying, if that's true, if that's really true of you, then you've been given at least one spiritual gift, if not more. You've been given at least one spiritual gift, if not more. And biblically speaking, we find these spiritual gifts listed in three critical areas. One's the text we're going to look at this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. We also see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. Skip put it up there for us. So here you see them listed nicely. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but in Romans 12, 6 through 8, we have what I call the motivational gifts. Every single one of us has one of those gifts. If you're a believer, you have either the gift of prophecy, service, teaching, encouragement, giving, leading, mercy. 
okay? You, you have one of those. That, that's what motivates you. That's what drives you. Now, if you're a professional, you see the office gift, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And we'll talk about that in just a moment because that's in our text. And then you have what I say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. The manifestation gifts are the support gifts that support either the office gifts or the motivational gifts. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning. I've talked about spiritual gifts before. In fact, we'll look at the office gifts in a moment. But here's my question. My question is this. How do you know what your spiritual gift is? How do you discover? Where do you discover what your spiritual gift is? And how is it going to be used? Did you realize the vast majority of us here this morning are just sitting? So we're really not using our spiritual gift. So where can you learn about your spiritual gift? And where can it be used? Uh, Let me give you an example. An example, I say the best place is small community. That's where the early church started in home, small community groups. For example, let's say that we're at Betty's house, okay, and Betty has the gift of hospitality, and Betty, you know, she's coming out, and she's, she's got a tray, a tray of hot cups of coffee, and she's coming out, she's going to bring it, she's going to serve the people at the small group. Suddenly, she stumbles a little bit, stumbles just enough that the hot coffee goes flying all over the floor, the, 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 the cups break. I mean, it's, it's ugly. It's really ugly, you got a mess there. And you know what the first thing happens? The first thing probably that's going to happen is you have Sally. And Sally has the gift of mercy. God bless her. And you know what she does? She goes and she puts her arm around Betty and says, there, there, it's okay, it's okay. And then you have a guy like Matt. You have a Matt. He's got the gift of leadership, probably a little bossy, okay? And, and he says, you know what? We need, we need a cleanup committee here. We need a cleanup committee. Bill, can you go get the mop? And Debbie, do you mind getting some paper towels to help out? And Bill and Debbie are more than happy to do it because, you see, they have the gift of service. And so they, they, they hop right on that thing. And then you have George. Now, George has a gift of teaching. And George says, you know, you know, uh, Betty, I saw what the problem was. You, you came out with the tray and you just had one hand underneath the tray. If you would just grab the tray with both hands... Then when you're walking and you stumble a little bit, see, you're going to, you know, you're not as likely to spill the whole thing. And that's George for you. And then you have Tony. Tony has the gift of encouragement. And Tony says, you know, you know, Betty, we're all human. We just all make mistakes. And I just want you to know, I really appreciate the effort that you made here. And then you have John. John, you love John because John has the gift of giving. Boy, we love those people that have the gift of giving, huh? Keep on giving. Keep those cards and letters and checks coming. And John says, and John says, you know what? Don't, no problem, Betty. I'm going to buy you a whole new set of coffee cups to replace all of the broken ones. God bless the Johns. And on and on I can go. And you see, that's how a small group works. See, it's in small community that you can discover what your gift is. It's more likely to come out. And it's manifested. You get to use it. Now, let me tell you a second wonderful thing about your spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift, by the way, is a way that you can know his presence. Do you want to be his presence? Do you want to know his presence? I bet you most of us here do. You know, your spiritual gift not only allows you to encourage and build up the body, and that's extremely important, but you get a great benefit too. Do you know when you use your spiritual gift or gifts, you experience his presence? Psalm 84, 
Got that skip? Psalm 84. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. Let me just give you a mini testimony right now. The testimony is this. You know, I've not hid this, but I struggle with depression. Probably has a huge genetic component from my father's side. The reality is I wake up almost blue every morning. Now, we have Susan, on the other hand, my wife, my lovely wife. She wakes up at 4.30 in the morning, and she's dancing and going, Oh, what a beautiful day it is. Now, see how that's going to work. They say opposites attract. I don't know. But see, I want to do something to her, and I'll just let you figure that out. You don't, when you're in a funk, want someone dancing around the house. But God is my witness. What I'm going to tell you next is true. You know how I pull out of my funk? I'll tell you how I pull out of my funk. I go to the sofa, and I pull out my Bible. And I have a pad of paper. If Susan were here, she would tell you the exact truth of this. And I just begin to read the passage that I'm going to be preaching on that week. And I can't tell you, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just invades my body. No, I mean, I mean, I come to life and I begin to have all of these incredible thoughts. And I'm writing thoughts down on the tablet. Time stands. So, I mean, it's like I'm in the twilight zone. Dee, 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 dee. It's, it's, no, it's absolutely incredible, and I'm suddenly out of my funk. Please understand, when you operate in your spiritual gift, then you will begin to experience the supernatural. When you operate in your spiritual gift or gifts, then you begin to experience the supernatural. Nothing like it. All right. Paul moves on, though, in this section in Ephesians. Again, if you have your Bibles, you can look with me. Then Paul says this, starting in verse 8. That is why the scriptures say, when he, that is Jesus, ascended to the heights, that speaks of his ascension after his resurrection, after 40 days of appearances, then Jesus ascended to be with the Father. He led a crowd of captives. You know what those captives are? Satan and the demonic beings. And he gave gifts, spiritual gifts, to his people. The picture being drawn here by the Apostle Paul, and anyone reading this 2,000 years ago would have immediately had this picture. They would have seen a Roman general who was victorious coming into Rome. And behind, he's riding on a chariot, and then behind him are the victorious soldiers. And behind the victorious soldiers are the captives, the vanquished foe. And then you've got the you know, victorious general, and he's just throwing out, I don't know what he's throwing out, but he's throwing out petals, you know, flowers and whatnot. Throwing out gifts. That's the picture being drawn here. Now watch this. Notice that it says he, Jesus, ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. That's not speaking about hell there, by the way. It's speaking about his incarnation. It's speaking about Christmas. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. That means that Jesus now is the sovereign of the universe. Now watch this. Now these are the gifts 
that Jesus Christ gave to the church. So you're going to see the gifts listed now in Ephesians. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. So Paul lists here what I call the professional gifts or the office gifts. It's important that you realize it's the office gifts are professional gifts, all right? So let's just quickly go over those, all right? First, he says, Skip, you can put that chart back up if you want. First, he talks about apostles. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the apostles because I talked about it at the beginning of the series. You can just, again, go to the BCC website, hit sermons, and it's right there on the podcast or the video. But if you are an apostle, probably not. Because, see, there were 12 of them. And we talked about that. You see the 12 very clearly listed. They're in the walls of the new Jerusalem. I believe after Judas defected and betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul was the 12th. He replaced him. He was called the apostle to the Gentiles. And there are 12 apostles, and they laid the foundation of the church. They gave us the gospel clearly, and they are responsible for the giving and the writing of Scripture. Then we have, after the apostles, we have the prophets. And again, I do not believe that the gift or office of apostle exists today. It's already been established. Then you have the prophets. What it means, if you are a prophet, it means that you are a mouthpiece for God. Literally, you are delivering God's message. And I believe that there are prophets today. And they're manifested in various ways. After the prophets, you have the evangelists. And the evangelists, the modern-day equivalent to the evangelists would be the missionary who goes and establishes very churches. They're able to present the gospel clearly, and then they establish a church. There are also people who have the gift of reaping. They are able to give the gospel out, and they reap. Perhaps the most famous one, of course, is none other than Billy Graham. And Skip, can you put up his picture? There's Billy Graham, his trademark. You ever notice what Billy's trademark is, by the way? That's right, he holds the Bible. He says, it's not Billy. He goes, the Bible says. See, the authority lies in the Bible. The Bible says. See, the authority lies in the Bible. And then you have pastor, teacher. Now, a lot of people talk about the five-fold ministry. That's really incorrect. It's not the five-fold ministry. It's the four-fold ministry. You have apostles. Prophets, evangelist, pastor, teacher, elder, teacher. Remember, if you look in Timothy and Titus, if you are truly an elder, then you must be able to teach. So it's really the fourfold ministry, all right? So I just briefly went over those things, all right? Here's my question to you, though. My question is, what is the job of these professionals? Right? You don't have to look at me. What are the job? What's the job of the profession? Now, see, if you're honest, what you're going to you're thinking, the reason why, Frank, we're paying you the big bucks is to do the work of the ministry, right? So as I like to say, I'm paid to be good, and you're good for nothing. <laughs> right? Wrong, wrong. What is our job? Skip, can you put up Ephesians 4.12? Ephesians 4.12 is clear. Their responsibility, the professionals, is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. My job, the job of the elders, is to equip and train you to do the work of the ministry. Let, Let me give you an analogy here. Let me give you a football analogy. I played football, and football's on people's minds because we're moving towards the Super Bowl, right? And uh, how many here are just football fans? I'm just curious. Just raise your hands. 
I got quite a few football fans. In professional football, does anybody know how many coaches there are on the average professional football team? Twelve is close. Not the 12 apostles, though, but 12 is close. Anybody else? There are 15. There are about 15 coaches. Listen to this. You have a head coach, an offensive coordinator, a defensive coordinator, a special teams coach, offensive line coach, defensive line coach, backfield coach, quarterback coach, etc., etc., etc. Now, my, my question to you is, all in all, you have 15 of these guys. What is their job? Is their job to play the game? You know, and you know what the reality is? If you look at half of these coaches, they're so badly out of shape, they're lucky to be able to run through the tunnel, across the field, to get to their sideline without having to get, you know, an oxygen mask. I mean, these guys are grossly out of shape. They're not going to play the game. What is their job, though? Their job is to train each of the players, their position to do their job well so that the team wins. Do you want to know why Christianity in America is in trouble? The reason why Christianity in America is in trouble, and there's a lot of reasons, but I'll tell you one of the greatest reasons, because the essential message you get from someone like me, the professionals, let me tell you something, this job is too tough for you. Leave it to me, the professional, to do the job. Now, I want to ask you, how's that working? No, seriously, how's that working for us? To have you just sitting here. Do you realize the great tragedy is, I don't care if we put smoke screens, I don't care if we are able to open the ceiling and we have fireworks every Sunday. You're not going to get the vast majority of people out there to ever come in here. It isn't going to happen. It just flat out is not going to happen. And so the reality is most people never, ever even hear a clear giving of the gospel. Isn't that tragic? Most people never, ever get a clear hearing of the gospel. My job, the job of the elders of this church is to train you and equip you so that you, you're, you're the workforce. Did you get, you're the missionary force. Can you imagine if we really equipped all of you? I'm not going to be able to get into your house. I'm not going to, I don't live in your neighborhood. I don't go where you work. Are you getting this? You are the missionary force. You are the workforce. We got to unleash you. We got to make you successful. Did you know that? Let me try it this way. Perhaps this will help you to understand. This may sound like it's not related, but it is. How many here know who the head coach is of the Carolina Panthers? How many here know who the head coach of the Carolina Panthers is? Anybody? You ought to know. I mean, they're going to the Super Bowl. It's Ron Rivera. Skip, can you put up the picture? There he is, Ron Rivera. He is the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. Now, how many here know who the head coach is or or who the quarterback is for the Carolina Panthers? What's his name? See, you know him, Cam Newton. You see, professional football essentially has it right. Who are the famous ones? The players. We hardly even know the coaches. And it's, it's, it's rightly so because the coaches aren't doing anything. They're teaching these guys how to play the game. Do you understand? So the ones who are famous are actually the guys who are playing the game. You know the players. But in the church, we only know the guy up here. Do you see how backwards this is? 
It's backwards. It's backwards because my job is to make you successful. My job is that you would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And if every single one of us here is well done, good and faithful servant, and everyone else who's in the body of Christ here is well done, good and faithful servant, Team Jesus wins. The church moves forward. It's that critical. Now, you know what I'm supposed to equip you to do? You know what the elders of this church are equipped you to do? Four things. I, I just want to give them to you. First, we, we should be equipping you to feed yourself. Can you feed yourself? Can you? Can you take this book? Can you take this Bible and does it open up to you? Does the Holy Spirit come alive and begin to speak to you? You should be able to feed yourself. We're doing a lousy job. If you don't know how to read this, feed yourself, become stronger and stronger, and learn how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing we should be equipping you to do is to share the hope that's within you. Can you? Jesus said, I've come to make you fishers of men. Do you have the ability? Have you been equipped enough? If someone comes up to you and says, you know what? How do you get saved? No, you see, we're supposed to be ready to share the hope that is within us. The third thing we should be equipping you to do is, do you know your spiritual gift or gifts? And are you using them? Because see, if you're not using your spiritual gift or gifts, the body's anemic. That's why you just see an atrophied body. It says all together we're to use our spiritual gift or gifts to build up the body. You are essential. If I'm the only one firing... And maybe a few others. We're in trouble. You can see why. I mean, we, we got a spiritually anorexic church. No, it's starving to death. Because people aren't using their gifts to build one another up. Finally, the fourth thing that we should be equipping you to do is to make disciples. Now, this is critical because this is the Great Commission. Jesus said, I'm calling you. No, no, I'm calling you. I'm calling you. I'm calling you to make disciples. Do you have the ability to have the privilege of leading someone to Christ and then building and pouring into them to the point where they can reproduce? Ah, See, that's what we're looking for, people who can reproduce. So my whole goal is to, if, if, let, me, let me tell you something. My whole goal is to set you on fire so that you can reproduce. I'll make no bones about it. That is my sole goal, is to set you on fire for the greatest mission on planet Earth, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. It's coming back. It's the only kingdom that's going to matter, and I want you to win. And Team Jesus needs to win. Now let's move to the challenge. The challenge is in the form of a test or a quiz. So Skip, can you put up verse 14? Put up verse 14 for us. It says this. It says, then, then, so in other words, if I'm doing my job and the elders and all the professionals are doing their job, then we, as a body, will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. You know, the first test is this. Are you mature? Are you really a mature Christian? You know, I have a lot of people say, oh, sure, I'm a mature Christian, really. What does Galatians 5, 22, 23 say? 
If you're a mature Christian, are you moving in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? That's a mature person. Do you really move in love? Let me ask the person sitting next to you. How's your relationships? No, seriously. Are you moving in love? Let me just talk to the person sitting next to you. They'll tell you. How about joy? Joy. I mean, one of the things that ought to mark us as a mature Christian is we have joy. Do you know that the average Christian looks like they're sucking on lemons? No, I mean, you got a no face. Guys, no faces don't work out there. We should have joy. It's a combination. You should have hope and contentment and beating in your heart. Love, joy, peace. Do you have peace in here? Oh, it's so, it's so easy to tell whether you have peace. You know how you know you have to have peace? Do you have peace in your relationships? Do you have peace in your relationships? Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. Are you long-suffering? Long-suffering has to do with people, not things. People matter, things don't. Did you ever notice Jesus? Anybody read in Matthew chapter 29 and Jesus was so busy trying to accomplish this task, he didn't have time for the disciples. By the way, Matthew 29 isn't in the scripture, okay? No, Jesus was never task-oriented. He was people-oriented. That's why he was long-suffering. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You know what kindness is? Kindness is when someone comes up to you and says, hey, can I have a moment of your time? You put everything down and you say, sure I do. Boy, wouldn't that be great if you did that with your spouse, your kids, people at work? See, you say, you say a ton when you're kind and you drop everything for them. Goodness. Goodness is positive. It does something beneficial for the person. You see someone in need. You actually give them money. You help them out. That's being good. Gentle. Gentle. Fruit, fruit number seven. Are you gentle? Prates. It literally means meek. Are you meek? What that means is that you're totally surrendered. You're surrendered to God. You're surrendered to the leadership that he has put in place. Can you honestly raise your hand and say, yes, I am fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever he says, whatever he wants, that is my will. Faith. Eighth fruit. Do you have faith? You know what it means to have faith? It means that you trust in Jesus' goodness. And you're not a control freak. See, if you really have faith, then you're trusting in Jesus. You're saying, Jesus, I know your plan is great. Let it unfold today. I'm trusting in you. Your plan's the best plan. I'm not going to try to tell you what you ought to do today in my life. I want to just jump into line with what you're doing. I have great faith in you, Jesus. And I trust in your goodness. It's going to be one or the other. You're either going to be a great person of faith or you're going to be a control freak. Which is it? And finally, the final fruit, self-control. How much self-control do you have? What about your television habits? Ooh. What about food? A little gluttony problem? What about in the area of sex? 
How are you doing there? I mean, is your life in control or is your life out of control? That's one way to demonstrate maturity, by the way. Another way is what Paul just says here. Paul says maturity also has to do with truth. Do you have the ability to discern truth from non-truth? Skip, can you put up 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 real quick? 2 Thess 2, coming up your way. This man, speaking of the Antichrist, I, I, I'm firmly convinced we're living near the end of days. Speaking of this man, will come and do the work of Satan, the Antichrist, with counterfeit power, signs, and miracles. I mean, people are going to be blown away what this guy's going to do. You're going to watch the world come into a, a collapse economically. And this guy will rise up out of the ashes. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those, and watch this, on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived, and they will believe these lies. They will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than the truth. You know, are you mature? Are you easily just blowing around? Or do you really know truth? Let me tell you, it's going to get tough out there. Even in the candidates, can you really discern truth from non-truth? Let me ask you a simple test here. Let's say someone, you say something, and someone comes up to you and says, you know, brother, sister, what you said, you know, that, that's, that's just not right. It doesn't line up with Scripture. What's, what's your reaction to that? Do you say, hey, thank you. Wow. Thank you for showing me the truth. Thank you for giving me the ability to repent and to walk in freedom. Or do you go, do you put up a wall and go, whoa, who are you, man, to judge me? Don't confuse me with the truth. Now, I just want to believe what I want to believe. See, what is your, really your response? See, again, a mature person's always interested when someone says, you know, what you're doing just doesn't line up with the word of God. And you're on a path of destruction. Well, let me give you the final test. Skip verse 15, put it up. It says, here it is, final test. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. When is the last time someone's accused you and said, man, you know what? You look like Jesus. When's that happen? You, 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 you look like Jesus. Wow. Wouldn't that be an awesome feeling? For someone to walk up to you and say, when I see you. No, no, you couldn't get a, I see Jesus. You know one of the ways you can be like Jesus more than any other way probably is your mouth. No, James says, you, he says, the average person on planet Earth, what comes out of their mouth is they set hell on fire. So I'm going to ask you, just think about your conversation when you speak. Do you speak truth in love? And you know what love means? Love means that you want the person to win. You know, if you go up to a person and you'd like to see, you know, them burn in hell, probably not good to talk to them. That's, that's just, you know, that's for free. Just a free piece of advice. No, 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 really, I mean... So often, we're just so bent out of shape with something. The last, you shouldn't even speak to that person. You don't speak to a person who's hurt you or offended to you until you really know what the truth is, and you're at the point where you've forgiven them, and you want them to win. See, then you're going to speak words of life. 
One of our biggest problems is that's where we're losing out here. And we're not speaking words of life because Jesus spoke the truth in love. He wanted, even the Pharisees, even the Pharisees, he wanted them to win. Even at the cross, I can't believe, even at the cross, there they were. The guys who put him up there and he said, Father, can you believe it? Forgive them, forgive them for they know not what they do. Wow. How about... Or are your words more often than not negative, angry, bitter, gossipy? You know, you're speaking really, think about your conversation. You're speaking about other people who aren't there and you're speaking about them in a negative way. Then you're a minister of life. I mean, a minister of death. It's just, just checking to see if you're listening to me. So now, you know, as we just, last question. Are you really a minister of life? Am I? I have to ask myself that. I was really convicted by this. Or are you a minister of death? There's a lot at stake here this morning. I want us to be a church, a body that ministers life. Father, thank you for your word. It, it can bring us life. It truly can I pray rather than resisting it, thinking of ways that we can defend ourselves, that we'll submit ourselves to. And anywhere we don't measure up, Lord, that's what's the beauty of Christianity. I, I don't measure up here. Forgive me. Just forgive me. Cleanse me. Circumcise out the anger that I have and the bitterness and the envy and the jealousy, and the lust. Just circumcise that out. I want to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I pray for the elders of the church here that you would help us to really equip and not be worried about ourselves, but to really make the body here successful in hearing well done, good and faithful servant. Now I have your way as we sing this last song, I pray in Jesus' name.